0: Well, welcome back, everyone, to, to part two of our episode with Frank Schaefer. I think you'll agree it's been an amazing conversation so far. So looking forward to jumping in to this part. So I guess it, it leads to a question, which, you know, we've, both Troy and I've discussed like coming into this, that there's a, there's a bit of a paradox in your life. And that is that you describe yourself as an atheist that believes in God and who prays. And, and that you say that you use this descriptor intentionally Tell us about that. What's it mean? What are you trying to convey about yourself when you do say that?
1: Well, the history of that little book, you know, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, is as follows. And that is, I wrote this memoir, Crazy for God. And I don't know um, how many of your listeners are familiar with the British writer Christopher Hitchens, who's, you know, one of the founders of what was called the New Atheist Movement with Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Hitchens and some others. So Christopher Hitchens uh, emailed me and said, I've read your book and I really like it. I'd like to talk to you sometime. And then I called him. We had a couple little phone conversations. Um, and and then he, he said, yeah, but I really don't like the end of Crazy for God because you, you still describe yourself as a spiritual person. Why aren't you one of us? He said, you know, I expected you to finish by saying, you know, now I'm a militant atheist and I reject all of, all, all, all of this, uh, you know, history and and the funny thing is i i got exactly the same letter if you change a few words from from one or two evangelicals who were far enough to the left or in the progressive movement to to still you know to were kind of on speaking terms but they were saying oh the book doesn't go far enough you know if you had only said clearly at the end of the book that you're you know still trying to follow jesus and that it may be different than it what you were raised with but you know, you talk about your spirituality, but there was no real affirmation there of of being a follower of Jesus. So it just struck me as odd. So I was thinking, okay, I keep writing these emails trying to explain one thing to everybody. And that is the only conclusion I've drawn at this point in my life is there are no conclusions in the sense that we used to look for the answer. And I'm now satisfied to live with the paradox of the fact that the certainty is the uncertainty. The journey is the destination. These kind of things. Um, And so I thought, okay, how can I have a title that sort of explains that paradox? An atheist who believes in God. And what I mean by that is this, okay, I pray. And in, in the intellectual sense, do I believe Jesus was the son of God? No, I do not. Do I believe there's even a God? I'm an agnostic on that subject, but tend towards atheism. So then why do I pray for my family in the morning and say grace before meals with Jeannie? Because and this will sound trite, but I, I just am being honest with you guys. That's how I was raised. And, I, and the, the American thing after that would be to say, you got a problem with that? In other words, why do you still pray? Because because that's, that's what my mother taught me to do. This is how I feel comfortable. I go to a Greek Orthodox church once in a while. I enjoy liturgy. Why do I enjoy liturgy? Well, there's the aesthetics of it. But if you were raised in that spiritual environment from you know, the first drop of milk you drink to now, 70, and you have children and grandchildren, it, it 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 is, at least in my view, it is honest, but at the same time, realistic to recognize that you have psychological and spiritual needs that can't be described and defended intellectually, but they are who you are. So that's like someone coming to me and saying, you know, why do you walk with a limp? Well, I had polio when I was two. What do you want me to do about it? So I am not going to live a life without spirituality and prayer and mystery and a certain connection with something out there, quote unquote, because that's who Frank Schaeffer is. I didn't have a childhood which gives me the luxury of just living on purely an intellectual plane. I am a human being and human beings are machines that look at the world through spiritual eyes. That is a paradox. Yes, it is. And guess what? There is no answer to that or explanation. And of course, that's where I bail on all the theology and all the rest of it. So, you know, my own view is, how do we state this paradox in a way that both sells a book, because you've written it, you want people to look at it. So let's just put it in the title. But also, how how do you kind of um, sum up the fact that you were raised thinking you had to look for the answer. And if you didn't have the answer, you're going to burn in hell. It's not just you're wrong, you're lost. Um, You know, I've moved to a place where I understand that the answer is to accept the paradox of the contradictions in the way you see things and not try to resolve them, but just deal with it and, and live with it. So that's kind of where I'm at. And because it's a journey, that's a snapshot of where we are right now as we talk.
2: So you, you wrote the book also Patience with God. Right. And what I liked about that book was on the one hand, you take the evangelical right to task. Yeah. And then in the same well, and then in an alternating chapters, you take the new atheists to task. Right. And, you know, in my own journey, I went from you know, hyper Pentecostal to evangelical left, sort of progressive. And then I eventually jumped over into the new atheist camp and that was it. There is no God. There is no nothing. Yeah. It's all, you know. And then I started to feel really uncomfortable there because it was very similar. It was very similar to what I had experienced. And in fact, other people pointed that out to me and said, You're just the same. You're just an evangelist for atheism now. But I love what you did in that book. And you you take both sides to task and you say hey you don't have to choose there's good here in both there's bad here in both it was great it was well written
1: yeah and that's where i was when i wrote that book and i've journeyed a little differently since i'm not saying that i you know don't agree with what i wrote in the book but you you see things slightly differently and i guess you know now what i've realized is is that a lot of the attractiveness of the morality within Christianity I was raised in, I'm talking about the original Libri vision of uh, the open community, kindness to people and so forth, not that big evangelical machine I became part of. Um, You know, some of the studying I've done in the last year, six years, uh, which is this project for the new book um, of mine, took me into an area that I'd never really studied before because you don't do this as the son of pastors and I, you don't do it as a movie maker and I ran away from a British boarding school, so where was I going to do this? But I started writing a book related to my experience as a grandfather doing child care and some of my science friends, Myrna Perez, who teaches science in, in, in a university and others, were reading these, these things I was writing about what it's like to be a grandfather and the pleasure of those relationships. And she was saying, it's really funny what you're doing here, Frank, because it overlaps with a lot of the new neurobiology and evolutionary psychology. You do realize you're on the cusp of something here. And I said, well, I'm not a science person. And she says, well, you, you should back up what you're saying. And here's something to read. And so What was going to be a two-year writing project then turned into a six-year project because Myrna and some other people who do know what they're talking about much more than I do, started giving me things to read. And if you read this, okay, then you should read this other paper he just wrote. So what I'm trying to say here is that some of the research that I did for the most recent book after the books you were talking about has taken me in a direction of studying evolution, not just a, a rough thumbnail sketch of biology, which of course I had a working knowledge of from long ago, but where the cutting edge is now and the way I would put it and I talk about it and what would be different, say that I would add to Patience with God now if there was another chapter, is that having studied that, what you realize is that the only reason any of the Christian morality worked, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, where that anybody walks around saying, I'm trying to follow Jesus, is because uh, the way human beings evolved was not to to favor the survival of the fittest. That is not even a good interpretation of Darwin, let alone of modern science. It's all changed now. So Dawkins' selfish gene, all that new today stuff is totally out the window. Uh, Richard Dawkins' old hat, nobody would take that seriously now. There's a, whole, there's a new phrase in, in, in evolutionary psychology, neurobiology and evolutionary studies. And it's really weird because it, it sounds like it's something out of Jesus. And it explains not that Jesus was the Son of God, but the only reason every anybody ever paid attention to anything he said is because it actually fits with the way we evolved. And the new sentence that covers it all is not survival of the fittest, it's the survival of the friendliest. It is the fact that people cooperate that has led to the survival of the human species. It is precisely the opposite of the idea of the toughest, sharpest elbows, meanest, toughest, hardest people are the survivors. So all the study of the original human community back into our evolutionary past for the last 110,000 years, uh, as we gradually wandered out of Africa and spread out across the globe, is all about the creation of caring community. It literally does take a village to raise a child. The only fact you and me, uh, Troy and and Brian, are here talking tonight is somewhere in our evolutionary ancestry. Somebody cared for someone and, 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 and took care of them. You know, a child was left by a path somewhere on a, in a forest and somebody picked that kid up and raised him. That's your great, 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 great somebody or you're not here. So the funny thing is the modern science today has shown me something. And that is that morality comes from the actual way we evolved to survive, the survival of the friendliest and and the 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 prophets the seers the the teachers the jesus'es of this world who came along and best articulate that back to humans it resonates in a way nothing else does because they are it is the closest description to the actual survival mechanisms of evolution and the big one is oxytocin and love because uh, you know we talk about love as part of the christian tradition the fact of the matter is love you know love is the only descriptor that binds all human evolution together, It exists, it's real, it's as real as a heart attack. It can be studied scientifically, it has been. I talk about Ruth Feldman in my new book and so forth, who have done these enormous studies on what love actually is in terms of chemicals, neurobiology, evolution, and neurotransmitters and so forth. It's real. It's the reason we don't all kill our children when they cry in the night. Um, because we have this incredible thing evolution gave us. So the, the thing is, when when you know Jesus says, loves your neighbor as yourself and so forth, or the Bible tells us this, it resonates precisely because that is the only reason the human race got this far. People were doing that long before there was even religion or verbal speech. We are cooperators and we are nurturers. So the funny thing is what I would add to Patience with God now, if I wrote it again, is look, um, the, the new atheists are wrong because Dawkins is full of shit. It's not about the selfish gene. We are the opposite of the selfish gene. We are the cooperators. And the people who cooperate best are the ones who survive. That's how it all really shook out. So I did a lot of reading. And and what amazed me was, in one way, it confirms the best of what I was raised with in terms of Christian community. Because, indeed, without community, we all perish. And, And the other side basically says to me, look, I have a little more of a glimmer of an explanation of why this stuff resonates. It doesn't resonate because it's religion. It resonates because it, it actually fits with the way we evolved to be. And that is not greedy sons of bitches destroying the planet, but caregivers of one another. Like tonight, you two, and I'm not being maudlin and silly here, you two are my caregivers because you are allowing me to express myself. What does a parent do for a child? That's what you're doing for me tonight. I've written a new book. I earn my living as a writer. You're doing what a good mother or dad does. His kid draws a little picture and he sticks it up on the refrigerator with a magnet so people can see it. He says, look what my kid did. That's what you're doing tonight. So I may be a 70-year-old who's written some books, but you're giving me a forum with the people who listen to you in the same way that a parent shows off what their kid's doing. So you're my caregiver tonight. That's why we're all here, by the way. I don't mean the reason for the podcast, but that's the only reason you exist, because people in your ancestral history did this. So Dawkins is full of shit. It never was the selfish gene. And the new atheists are full of shit. It never was just this chance plus time equals human beings. And we're here for no reason. And there's no meaning in life. There is meaning in life. And the meaning in life is the connection we have with other people. And any prophet that stands up and makes that point is suddenly hailed as something very, very special. And we follow that person and the people like Dawkins who come along and say it's all just selfishness and self-interest fall by the wayside. We don't follow those guys anymore because they do it does not resonate with the truth of the way most of us live. So, you know, that would be the kind of next step for me. I get into that in my new book, but when I look back at Patience with God, I hadn't done that reading, but I did a 6-year study project to produce this book and that would have been the next step in that book.
2: So, this new book fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy, possibly the longest title of a book in a little while anyway. Um, But you know, when, when when I read that book, the thing that I thought about it, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to get you on, not just to hear about your story, but also about this book, is that it seems to talk about family values. And we've had a lifetime's worth of that. From the evangelical tradition, but you're coming along now saying, hey, similar, but not the same. Tell me about that.
1: And and I'm saying, you know, take it from the sort of the foreword of the book all, all through the book, I start out by saying, look, you know, I've been in the business of selling fake family values that were actually just nothing more than thinly veiled misogyny, trying to put women back in the box, as it were. They've escaped somehow. They're doing their own thing. They're having abortions. They have sex. They do all this stuff. Let's curb this whole woman thing and put it back in the box in the name of biblical theology. We were selling fake family values. And that, and by the way, our inheritors in the American right are, are t- total hypocrites in this because, you know, one minute they're arguing for family values and against women having access to contraception and abortion. But 10 minutes later, they're also saying we're not going to fund child care because it's socialist. I mean, give me a break. But that's not, I actually mentioned that in the book, but that's not the book about. So, you know, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy is a provocative title because I made it deliberately a conventional title. I could be describing, you know, Mormon theology of family, family. But as soon as you crack the book and read it, you'll realize that what I'm talking about is totally different. Sure, I'm also talking about romantic love, and you have kids and you have children, and I did, and I found a lot of satisfaction in that, and I'm taking care of my grandchildren, hands-on caregiver, so my daughter-in-law can have a great career, blah, blah, blah. That's all in the book too. But if you take these items one at a time, I'm not talking about falling in love only romantically. This applies to gay gay people, trans people, single people, people who don't have children. I'm talking about falling in love with love itself. Let's understand that Love is great stuff, and it's the only thing that keeps human beings going. And I'm not talking about psychology as in makes you feel good. No, 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 no. This is as, as, as grounded in science and neurobiology as cardiology is. This is like thoracic surgery. This is the real deal. So I talk about the studies of why love is central and why people who reject love, say by chasing career, instead of connection or chasing money and power over others instead of empathy in the end are hurt worse than the people they're damaging they suffer the most because what they've done is cut themselves off not from the teachings of Jesus they've cut themselves off from the actual essence of what it means to be a human being and therefore they cannot find joy so there's weird little there there you know there's weird little things that we know now for instance, about what having power over other people does to us in terms of our own ability to feel empathy. There's whole studies on this, and I have them in the book. There's studies that show the level of pleasure we get after out of acquiring something we've wanted, like, say, a Mercedes SL 300. We've always wanted to collect this cool antique car. Okay, you finally get one. People actually measure, okay, how long does it make this rich guy happy? About a week to 10 days. That's how long the kick lasts. And then it's over. On the other hand, neurobiology, how long does it make someone and sustain someone's level of joy to be in a supermarket and the the person ahead of you has a shopping cart full of diapers and everything, they get to the checkout counter, they don't have enough money to pay for it, and you haul your wallet out and help this young mom or dad and the the, psych- the studies of this show that people up to 10 years later can draw on this memory and lift their own selves out of depression. So we're actually built by evolution to care for each other. When you are in, the, in those relationships, you you ha- and that's what the book is about. So essentially, if you had to boil it down, you just say, look, it's the survival of the friendliest, not the fittest. And when it comes to love, it is understanding that if we fall in love with love itself and see ourselves as caregivers, then when I say have children, I'm not talking only about biological children. I'm talking about seeing everyone you encounter as your child in the sense that you are at that moment, their caregiver. And, and, and I remember reading a story in the New Yorker about 15 years ago that really affected my life. I mean, really, you talk about a pivotal moment. Um, it was interviews with survivors of suicide attempts serious suicide attempts, like you blew your head off, but you only took a piece of your face off instead, jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. One of them was actually with a guy who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Nobody survives that. So they were able to find this guy because he had survived it. And he told the interviewer that I told myself in my apartment that morning that I was going to walk from my apartment up in, in town to the Golden Gate and jump off about a half an hour walk and if I encountered one person on the way who made eye contact and smiled at me and asked me how I was, I would not jump. And I didn't, that didn't happen once. So I jumped. And that stuck with me. It's been one of, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it actually changed my life. And so. Like in my neighborhood right now, there's a guy who had his son who was 46 years old killed in a car crash two days before Christmas. Okay, I don't know him that well, but I actually go out in the morning and wait while I walk my dog till I see him so I can walk over and see how he is. Okay, it's not a big deal, but it's a pattern of life. And so that's having children. So you fall in love with love and you have children. Yes, they're biological children. Yes, they're grandchildren. But your relationship with other people is you 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 see them as a child in that moment, not in the condescending sense of treat them like a child, but with the sense of unconditional love and care. Um, and then and then the, and, and so that's that that's the essence of the book. So basically, you know, if somebody reads the book, they're going to find stories about caregiving, practical hands-on stuff with my grandchildren. They're going to find the science of why I find joy in that. But then they're going to find a real challenge. And here's what the challenge of the book is. How do you define success? So if success is job, title, income, position, and power, you will have one kind of life. If success is what you read in the eyes of the people who know you, whether that's love or fear or unconditional love, you will have a different life. So it depends what mirror you want to look in. Do you want to look in the job mirror, the career mirror, the power mirror? Or do you want to look in the mirror of the child who's looking up at you with trust and love and not fear because they are looking at someone who treats them in a certain way because they have actually fallen in love with itself. itself, And then you will have a different life. You may have less money. You're, you may not have as fancy a house, but you're going to have a very different life. And in the end, the crazy thing is you're going to find joy. So then you get to the be happy part and the save the planet part is the function of living in those first two ways, because you're not raping your earth if you're in love with love and you're seeing everyone as your child. Then you're going to care about the air they breathe. You're going to care about the, the global uh, warming. The be happy part is, is strange because what the book really says is you cannot, there is no direct route to happiness. The more you look to be happy, the more unhappy you will be. The only way to find happiness is precisely because you have fallen in love with love itself. You're treating other people as you would treat your children, and therefore you are happy precisely because what you're working for is their joy and happiness, and that's where you will find yours. So I'll give you a personal example, and again, this sounds like I'm patting myself on the back. I'm not. I'm just telling you how I live. I get up at 3 in the morning to write. At about 4.15 every morning, I have a second cup of coffee, and then I stay in the kitchen for 20 minutes. I do all the dishes from the day before and clean the kitchen. It doesn't take long. But it means that every single morning, my wife, Jeannie, who gets up and who, by the way, as we've talked in the rest of this podcast, you know, grew, stuck with and groomed this asshole by divine right and hung in there and helped him. OK, so I turn that around and I do all the dishes and the cooking. And that means that she can have her unicorn moment of joy, as it were, and go to the sewing studio that I built for her for her 50th birthday. And instead of hacking around in the kitchen, trying to do all the housework. She's got a husband that does this. Why? Because I'm an altruistic great guy? Not at all. Because I'm smart enough to know that the most selfish thing I can do is make the person I love most in this world happy. There is nothing that gives me more joy. And I'll take it up a level here and just really be frank with you. It's what I learned about having sex. So when I'm a teenager, it's just get on top and out, slam bang. Might as well have been a scene out of Clockwork Orange you know, fast and dirty. It's it's just two steps away from, from not from rape exactly, because it's not violent, it's consensual. Eventually, you know, unless you're a complete idiot, you learn that the single most erotic thing you can do is find out what makes someone else, gives someone else pleasure, and be participating in that pleasure, turns right around and makes the experience incredibly different than the sort of slam band, thank you, ma'am, teenage bullshit you were involved in. You know, I always laugh when <laughs> this is more information than you want, but I always smile when you see these scenes in movies. And I don't know who, why are those fucking directors? I mean, have they never actually had sex? You really wonder because it's always the same scene, isn't it? They come home from the date and the guy slams the girl against the wall. They rip each other's clothes off pretty soon. He's propping her up on a kitchen table or a household appliance and having sex with her. It's like, are you kidding me? You know, Jeannie and I, I, I'd love to see a movie. I mean, if someone ever did a movie of us, they'd be sitting there saying, when are they gonna do something? They're just lying there holding hands talking about their grandchildren. When's it gonna start? Um, You know, so sex for me is a long sort of, it, it starts with emptying the dishwasher. That's foreplay. Conversation, I'm lying there with this 70 year old woman holding her hand talking about my grandchildren. I give her a kiss. And, and we start taking care of each other in ways that only we know. So I don't know if I'm a great lover or not, but I know that I'm Jeannie's best lover because I know her better than anybody on this planet. And for me, sex is making sure that she's really happy and enjoying what she's doing. And God damn, if it doesn't turn around and make me incredibly erotically aroused. Now, I didn't know that. But so I'm not just talking about airy-fairy
2: shit of falling in love and being nice to everybody. I'm saying this actually works Frank, can I just tell you, this actually brings us back to a question we had on our Speaking in Tongues episode in season one. Brian, remember when we said, what is the best use of tongues? Yeah, right? Yeah, right. And here we, here we are getting the answers, right? <laughs> talking about your kids. <laughs>
1: I'll write that as my next book. But what I'm talking about here is the fact that, you know, I just want to say it again, because here's the big point. You, this is not stuff that has to do with some spiritual enlightenment. This has to do with studying the process of evolutionary biology and neuropsychology. Because guess who we are as human beings? We are lovers. And if you cut that out of your life and you put other stuff ahead of that, you're in trouble. And, and all the statistics, I don't know what's happening in Australia, but in America, every single year they do studies, the insurance companies and others, loneliness is skyrocketing. There was even a book published last month, and you think this is a joke, How Not to Die Alone. That's the title of the book. Because so many people are disconnected and unconnected. They don't stay put. They're always moving around for jobs and to make more money. And they have absolutely no connection with anybody around them. Less and less people know who to call, even if they have a problem. Um, All all these studies they do on happiness and everything, it's all going in, it's all
2: trending in the wrong direction. If I was sitting listening to this from, like, let's just say I've just left evangelicalism. Um, I've had the family values thing thrown at me. Um, Maybe I wasn't married in the church, and there was pressure on me to get married and have kids, and now you're coming along saying, okay, I've been out of this game now for 40 years. I'm going to write a book about happiness, post-evangelicalism. By the way, you need to get married and have kids. Is that what yeah, you Yeah, but said?
1: that's not what the book says. I mean, you know this because you read the book, so it's not a trick question because you're trying to get me to say what the book says. You know, I'm talking to I'm talking to non-binary people, gay people, trans people. I'm talking to my friends who read the book and loved it, who wrote back and said, you've got to say a little more about, the, the, you know, somebody who chooses not to have a child and so on. I use my son as an example who's single, has no kids. He's a teacher. The book is not about get married and be an old white guy like Frank Schaefer. In fact, um, you know, the, the last string of this book is the COVID pandemic because it came along while I was finishing the thing up. So I went through the book and kind of rewrote it as a post-pandemic handbook. Not that we're at the end of it that yet, but, you know, looking into the future. And it's almost like there was a kind of talk about divine intervention. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a bad practical joke because what I call for in the book is to everybody to take an adult time out, sit back, reflect, and don't be so busy. So all of a sudden, there's no jet trails in the air. There's no cars on the freeway. Everybody's stuck at home. Uh, sheltering in place because of the pandemic, doing precisely what the book calls for to the extent that I say, hey, listen, stop for a minute. Think about where you're at. Well, the result in America is I don't know what's going on in Australia, but as things, quote, begin to come back to normal, people like my son, in his case, actually, my son, John, who does have the three kids across the street, cuts a new deal with his company, says, look, I've been working from home for a year. I'm not coming back into the office. You want me to keep working for you? I'll come on on Thursdays. And otherwise deal with it. I'll just get another job because I didn't, I don't want to do the commute anymore. I want to be home when my kids go to school. I want to be there when they come back. And, um, uh, you know, that these are the terms. And so the funny thing is in America, we're undergoing this thing. People are calling the great resignation where people on all levels, blue collar jobs, single moms working three jobs. Everybody's asked, everybody's trying to renegotiate the terms of their work life balance so the funny thing is that COVID is sort of the final shoe to drop on my book project because it actually has started a process that I guess you could say, you know, if the book had be- became a runaway bestseller and everybody in the world read it and they said, okay, let's try this, it would have the experiment, I know this is a very dark way to put it, but the experiment would have been COVID in the sense that it's like a, a memo. From Mother Nature herself, saying, "Stop everything you're doing and go home and think for a year, because you're fucking up your lives. Take take time and think it over." And so that's the that also that thread is also in the book, and I talk about the kind of time out we've been given by COVID. So in a way, it's a blueprint for some to come back, not to you know. Everybody says, "Well, when do we get to back to normal?" I'm saying the last thing you want to do is go back to normal. Because the old normality was horrible. It's a death trap. Read the statistics on loneliness, suicide, all these other things in the U.S., drug addiction, all the rest of it. It obviously is not working. Something's out of whack here. And what's out of whack, I say again, is not that people aren't having babies and getting married. What's out of whack is that we are not living according to what, what evolution equipped us to do best, which is not get a room in the boardroom and make billions of dollars. That's fine if you do that. But what nature equipped us to do best is to connect with other people on a human and humane and empathetic level. And if you design a a commercial culture where the bottom line is shareholder profits, you're fucked. And what you wind up with is where we are.
0: A very similar thing is definitely happening here, Frank. And, and the Great Resignation language is definitely something that started to to thread into Australian society too. And certainly in the company I work for, we've we've had an enormous amount of people resetting their lives and certainly um, uh, increasing their work from home where they can uh, in jobs that they can do that. So I've done that myself. So I completely agree. It's been an opportunity for a bit of a, a reset. And I'm hoping that we can actually continue that traction that we've made through the pandemic because it's uh, it's some really important things. And I think it threads through your book, as you've said, that you've talked about, you know, that ability to make that generational change, to make that change by actually having an, and investing in that relationship. You do it and talk about it with your children and your grandchildren, that you're investing in that, that you're trying to make that generational change and embed it. Do you think that, Frank, um, that we saw in you know the early days coming out of Labrie and and then coming out of and um, um, going into the larger evangelical ministries, um, the vast difference. T- talk to us about that, Frank versus Frank, where you are now, the Frank that keeps on evolving.
1: You know, I, I joke and sometimes that if I had a time machine, the other guy would just disappear. I'd take him out. You know, there's so much about that asshole by divine right I really hate in retrospect that he'd be gone. For one thing, I would go see Jeannie in high school in California and say, "Look, you know this trip you're going to take for your high school graduation to Switzerland? Forget it. It's going to re- you're going to meet this guy and you're going to marry him, and it's going to be such a long, hard road. Look, I like you too much to let you do this. I mean, there's a lot I would change. All joking aside." Um, but the difference is this: first of all, I am, I am not a certainty addict anymore, and I realize that, you know, the, this, this quest for certainty runs against everything that we really know to be true about the nature of nature. You know, if, if you look at what they're doing in CERN in Geneva, in the Large Hadron Collider, looking for ever smaller particles, they're looking for invisible things that you can't actually see. You can only see the the, the way it affects other particles. And you get into the whole, you get into the whole field of physics today. Um, you know, my son Francis teaches physics, so I get in on the edge of it with a bit of a layman's explanation from him once in a while. But you know, what you understand is that that even on the cutting edge of science, you're into a realm of paradox. How can some how can a particle be in two places at once? I mean, but they are. So the this Christian idea that if you have a correct theology, you can kind of wrap it all up in a neat little package and not only find salvation, but have an answer to everything is, is just literally delusional. So the old Frank Schaefer was deluded. The new Frank Schaefer may still be deluded, but at least he knows he's deluded. You know, there's a big difference. And, and so for me, you know, it's, it's basically embracing this idea of paradox. That's one thing. And then the other thing is, is, is essentially saying, This silly choice we were given as Christians, that it's either God and the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes, or you will have no morality, everybody will be, you know, we're all going to be into bestiality and, and child sacrifice in about 10 seconds if we don't follow Jesus, Western democracy comes from Christianity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, was just nonsense because it's evolution that prepared us to be humanists. It's evolution that prepared us to care. It's evolution that, that gifts us with the chemical neurobiological process that makes us love. It's evolution that gives us a craving for empathy as a survival tactic. This predates even writing, let alone what does the Bible say? You know, how, Why are we still here? Well, we're here because you didn't need any of this to survive. What you needed was to, to essentially go with the survival tactic that the actual evolution of life gifted us with, which begins with this business of, of love. Um, and so for me, you know, what's changed is the idea that the answer is not in some book. You know, for me, the, there is the, 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 you know, you're not looking for the answer. You're looking for a process that fits with who you are as a human being. So if you want to be a deist and say, this is God's wonderful plan, fine. Be that. I'm not going to argue with you. That's fine. That's good. As long as you're treating, as long as you get up in the morning and do your the dishes so your wife has a better day, I don't care how you get there. Whereas before, I really cared about what you believe. Like, oh, if you don't believe the way I believe, not only are you lost, but somehow you're going to destroy Western civilization. I just don't feel that way. So, you know, some asshole preaching the gospel or some new atheist asshole with all the, yeah, I, don't, I don't give a shit what he or she is saying. I want to know what is your relationship like with the people who are closest to you? when the real you is there and you're, and the talking is done who the hell are you that's what i want to know and i used to be i used to be much more you know a hypocrite in the sense that i was i was sort of being this bully with my wife and children but on the surface doing this christiany stuff now i have a lot less answers and the irony is I, i'm actually behaving in a way that to be maudlin about it you could say as you know theology aside, is more Christ-like in the sense that you really do find within the evolutionary process the motivation to be open to your nurturing side and to be kind. And, and, And so it actually works out better.
2: I think I'm a much better Christian now that I'm not a Christian.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've never met anybody on... I've met people like me who have had terrible loss in terms of family relationships because people won't speak to you when you leave that tribe. But I've never met anybody who has come out of an evangelical fundamentalist background who 10 years later says, you know, I, uh, I want to get back to that. I mean, there must be people like that out there, but you usually meet people who have, have a great sense of relief and freedom uh, and actually wind up treating the people in their lives better, not worse.
0: That treatment, and you've talked about the evangelical church and you talk about it in your book, um, and and certainly the... Uh, the, the less than ideal way, I guess, the, that they act. Do you think it's a, a self-perpetuating beast that's going to eat itself, uh, the evangelical scene and the Pentecostal scene? Because the the way in general um, that they train their kids, their next generations to, to treat each other, is something that's going to make them implode in the end? Or do you think they're going to get a, a, an out-of-control beast?
1: Everything implodes in the end. Uh, you know, because the second law of thermodynamics, I mean, the sun is going to cool down too. So, you know, long range everything goes, but short term, unfortunately, you know, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not using this as an analogy at all. But it did take World War II, you know, to shut down the German Lutheran Church that had gone with the fascists for 20 years and saw them as a path to something. I mean, yeah. It might just eat itself, but it also may create some cataclysms before it all plays out. And so, there, you know, I'm not sanguine about it. I mean, when you have a whole political party in the United States, the Republicans now who essentially are working to try to make America into a theocracy um, on, on all sorts of fronts. It has. I mean, just look at one. Just I'll give you one Supreme Court ruling as an illustration. Um, they during the lockdown. They said that churches had to be exempt, because that's religious liberty. So now public health takes a second, second as a seat behind um, religious civil liberties, seen through the lens of religious extremism.
0: It, it was similar here; it, it was seen as persecution.
1: Yeah. That, otherwise, we're being persecuted. Okay. This is the this is the lingo of Saudi Arabia and Iran. This is not the way America usually is, where like democracy, science, uh, rational thought is supposed to be. You know, in our constitution and balancing things. You know, when religious liberty becomes a persecution mania that demands that you don't wear max- masks and get vaccines as your stand for Christ, and then the Supreme Court backs it up, fine if that's some little loony group. Okay, everybody is, you know, there's crazy people everywhere. But when the Supreme Court wades in and says, yeah, we interpret this as religious liberty, and or hands down a ruling saying, you know, Christian institutions are exempt from providing uh, insurance coverage for contraceptives for their female employees, now you got a different situation. And that's where we are now. So they're winning right now. They're winning.
0: So as, as a member of the, you know, ex-evangelical royalty back then, what would your word be or your advice be to the evangelical church now?
1: Hey, I would say, look, man, if I was still an evangelical, I would just say we're slitting our wrists. I mean, you understand by hooking your wagon to, a, to, a, to an outfit like the Trump clan you know, what you have done to the name of Jesus. Let's just start there. Who can ever become a Christian again if this is the image? You understand, you know, never in, you know, there's nothing, you know, nobody ever said you had to accept Donald Trump as your personal savior. And that's what it's become. So look, guys, even even judging by your own standard, you're screwed. And you are taking, you're taking everything down with you. You're going to guarantee that a whole new generation will come along that'll like vomit when they heard, hear the word evangelical, because what it will represent in their mind isn't even just the con artist like Pat Robertson. It's going to represent this total corruption of American politics and democracy in the name of, of white evangelical Christian nationalism. There will come a reckoning, guys, and you're going to be on the wrong side of history. That, that, is, that is the word, and it's tr- a true word. So if I was a loyal evangelical right now, uh, I would be shouting even louder from the housetops about the damage being done to the evangelical movement by total association with the far right.
0: Well, we, we might just label this the prophetic word by Frank Schaeffer. Yeah, you can.
1: Yeah, why not?
2: <laughs> we can start a ministry. Start a ministry, indeed. There's a second person that said that to us. Yeah. So, Frank... You've got a great back catalog of books. Um, you've got a podcast as well. How do people connect with you and, and your work and obviously your new book? Sure.
1: Well, first of all, I, I don't hide. So I'll give, I'll give you the email that I actually look at. I've got a Gmail account and so much crap comes in, I don't look at it. But I have an old AOL account that I actually look at. I don't care if you put that up there. It's just Frank A. Schaefer, middle initial A, at AOL.com. And I answer my emails, you know, if you say fuck you, right on the subject line, be clever. Say you have a nice question and I'll start reading it. Um, So Frank A. Schaefer at AOL.com. But my books are on Amazon and everywhere else, you know, that you can order books. Uh, There's about 15 of them. The Calvin Becker series, Portofino, Saving Grandma, Zermatt, are hilariously funny, if I say so myself. They're, like I say, translated in nine languages everywhere. Anybody with any kind of an association with uh a, a, a religious background loves these books and a lot of other people besides and then um my new book fall in love have children stay put save the planet be happy is everywhere uh should be available in australia uh, i think it's there now um came out in the states about two months ago three months ago um and then all my other books available again online and where you order books or in bookstores. Um, my podcast is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. There's two of those come out a week, uh, and we interview all sorts of people. And one of the interesting things that's happened because of Fall in Love, Have Children is that some big, heavy-hitting American feminist women's groups have picked the book up and are in- interviewing me about it. And also, I'm interviewing them on my podcast, the WBC, which is a really amazing group called the Women's Business Collaborative run by Edie Fraser out of Washington Uh, Is associated with about 600 women's groups across the globe. Basically, women in business and gender parity and pay parity. They love the book because I bring up the whole issue of balancing work and life in a way that favors women, as they see it. And so, I've got some interesting allies on this project in the feminist movement and other places. Um, But if people follow, if people like my podcast in the in the online sense of you like it, so other people see it, uh, that would be a big help to me. And that's in conversation with Frank Schaefer. Look at that. L- listen to those episodes. I think you're going to find amazing stuff. Representative Ted Lieu, third most senior, senior person in U.S. Congress after Nancy Pelosi. Um, Moby, the, the uh, rock musician, a one-hour interview with him uh, on all sorts of stuff. You know, we have a whole range of people we talk to, a lot of feminist leaders, people from the former Christian background like me, like you guys, uh, you know, all of that stuff. And then um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. But I think really, if you want to follow what I'm doing, the the place to find me is not like what I tweet, although it'd be nice if you'd follow because that helps our, our footprint when it comes to getting the word out on the podcast. But the podcast is where we really get some good stuff going and then the books, which are available. And then if you want to email me, fine, email me.
2: Cool. Well, I mean, looking at this and thinking 40 years ago, you walked away from evangelicalism. And I'm thinking, you know, we've got people in our audience that are 20 years out, 10 years out, five years out, a year out last week, you know? So in one sense, you can be a kind of Uncle Frank to them and say, here's what you can look forward to. Here's what I've learned on that journey.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that actually is a big chunk of the new book too. And also my memoir, Crazy for God. So yeah, there's a lot of that in my work already. And um, hope and it has it has been helpful to some people. And again, but I'm the guy who got help most because it's it's introduced me to a whole bunch of people who say, "Hey, we understand what you. We've traveled the same journey. Thank you, and let's talk." And that's that's been very therapeutic.
0: That's awesome, Frank. And you know, you do talk about uh, a lot of awesome things in your book. But uh, I, I guess we want to ask, as we said at the start, we really like to to end on a positive, and we like to be able to. I guess, draw out some of those learnings, some of that wisdom from people like yourself who've been on a journey. So tell us about some of those things or the thing that you're most thankful for about your time in fundamentalism.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the thing I'm most thankful for is that I saw a brand of Christianity before our whole family went to hell in a handbasket going into the right, which showed me, and I know this is a really weird way to put it, that my parents were better people than their theology. And they, they, they had real compassion and empathy. I have seen a good version of Christianity. When I think back to my Christian experience, it's not all bitterness. It's thankfulness, for instance, for the support that my pregnant teen wife, Jeannie, and I were given by a whole community that believed they, this is how they would follow Christ, was by being kind to this young couple amongst other people. So I walk away saying, hey, guys, when you leave that, if you walk away from the Christian community, even if it's a good Christian community and you had attachment there, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, because the part of that that worked for you was the community. And that is available to anyone that understands, as I've been talking about, like a broken record, how we evolved, which is to connect with other people uh, through these this amazing evolutionary process, which makes us caregivers. So... You know, the positive note I would end on is that I'm actually an optimist about the human future. I'm not a pessimist. And I'm not a pessimist because the human future will be governed not by our ideas or politics or wars or power structures. It will be governed in the final analysis by the way we evolve to be, which is an interpersonal connection and caregiving. And so essentially, if we work to move past those things which prevent us... From actually enjoying the benefits of being human, um, which is the sense of being cared for, guys, not just caregiving, but being cared for, it's reciprocal. Um, you know, we're in trouble. But the, the beauty of the fact is, this is really who we are. I mean, we are programmed to, to need and to give care. And so I would say my optimism is that I think in the end, just like my father was a better person, my parents were better people than their theology. I think that applies to across the board of human experience. I think that the Chinese people are better people than the theology of the Communist Party. I think that the Saudi Arabians and Afghans and uh, Iranians are better people than fundamentalist Islam. I think that the new atheists are better people than Dawkins' hard-edged survival of the fittest. I think there is a a genuine core value and morality in the experience of being human, which in the end always does somehow come out on top. And that right now in the world with climate change and all the things we face, we are going through a very hard patch. Well, guess what? Study a little history and get some perspective. Because if you had been in 12th century Europe and a third of the population of the continent had just died in the Black Death, it would be pretty grim. We're still here because... The result of that, the Black Death, was the Renaissance. It was a bunch of people like uh, Lorenzo de' Medici and Cosimo de' Medici and Galileo and Botticelli and Leonardo and the others saying, Hold everything, guys. Let's take a time out here. This isn't working. We've got we've to look at this sciencey thing and figure out what to do about this stuff. And they did. And we're going to do it too. We're going to be okay it's just we may not be around personally to see that but this isn't the end of everything um humans are resilient and they're smart and they're creative and they're awful at the same time but they're more smart and more creative than they are awful we are better than our politics and we are better than our religion we're better than our theology we're better than our propaganda uh you know we 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 don't give up hope the human race is the human race is is, is going to be all right and um you know, we can have families and and fall in love and children and all these other things with some confidence because uh, this is not the end of days. Here, it's it's fine. This is not an apocalypse. We're going to be okay.
0: I do love that, Frank. That it's a it's a beautiful way to end, and I guess it's a beautiful way to summarize um, who you are, but also what your book says. So we do encourage people to read, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, and be happy. And we'll put all of the uh the information in the show notes that has a a link to your podcast but also your social medias and also where to get your books so we will make sure that we connect people up with that but just want to say thank you for your generosity thank you for talking to us um and just always communicating with us when we emailed you just the the fact that you picked it up you sent straight back and said, I would love to do this. I, I think it's just amazing. And um, I really thank you for that.
2: Yeah. And another thing, too, is we'd love to send you a t shirt, too. You can see B's you got the I was it. a teenage fundamentalist t shirt. So we'll send that to you and uh, as, as our gift to you for being on the show. So thank you very much. We're really glad to have had you.
1: And me, me too. So just um, e- email me and say you need an address to send a t shirt. I want your t shirt. I'll wear it. Well, next time you interview me, I'll have your t shirt on
0: beautiful i i love the fact that you're saying next time we interview you because yeah we yeah we had a good that. discussion that'd be great
1: good well listen guys much love to you and thank you for being my caregiver tonight serious i'm not kidding you know you reached no. out you're talking about my book i spent six years working on it that's caring
2: yeah no problem no problem i'm gonna cue the music brian there it goes and we'll see well we won't see we'll hear you next week
0: we will see you later and thank you again Frank.